rocking there. But we often bog down when we get to this portion of Exodus, the portion regarding the law in the book of covenants. If you're like me, we've asked in the past, what do I do with these laws? How am I to interpret them? We're going to talk about that today. What role does the law of God given to a Jewish people in the desert, how does that relate to us as believers right here and now in the 21st century living in America? You see, one of the problems with the law is that, well, it's hard to relate. There's a time span, there's a cultural span as well. Oftentimes we read the law of God, frankly, it seems pretty harsh. Verse 17 of chapter 21 in the text that we'll go through today says this, whoever curses or dishonors his mother and father shall be put to death. Ouch! Got some, a few parents here nodding their heads. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll address that later. Uh, or it just seems archaic. How about this one? Verse 28, chapter 21. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. Frankly, I don't think most of us in South Florida would know an ox if we saw one. <laughs> Let alone find a stone in which to stone him. Uh, so we have some work to do this morning, don't we? I vividly remember it. The first morning of our honeymoon, I thought I would show a little leadership. In our marriage, I thought I would lead my bride through our very first devotional time together. So I chose to do a study on the law of God. <laughs> yep, what was I thinking? <laughs> I don't remember the passage. I believe it was probably Psalm 119, which is Psalmist David is delighting in the word of God. But let's just say my wife was not delighting in our devotional time. And she was not delighting in me at that moment. She was probably thinking, I know she was thinking, and wondering, who did I marry? I am stuck on this small island for seven days with a law-loving, legalist husband. <laughs> Let's just say it was our first conflict, okay? As a married couple, it didn't take long. Well, guys, I suggest if you are wanting to ramp up your leadership in the home and you want to lead your wife to devotional, don't choose the law of God as your first topic. <laughs> choose the top of grace the gospel, or at least do a better job than I do of making the connection between the law and the gospel. See, I think many of us still have that same visceral reaction when we think about the law of God. Either it's something that's bad, we've been freed from the law of God, we're done with it, or perhaps it's been used against you in the past in a very legalistic and harsh way. Either way, when we say the law of God, there's not much excitement. There's not much delighting in your heart. Friends, can we as a people truly learn to delight in the law of God, including the Old Testament law? What does that look like? How do, are we to interpret and receive it and embrace it this morning? That is our task, and that is my burden. It says in your notes, the prompt for this morning, as God's people embrace, receive, delight, in God's law, as God's grace to you. Oh, that we would understand and embrace God's law in the Old Testament as God's gospel agenda 
for us as a church this morning. Oh, but to make this connection in our heads and our hearts, we need the Lord's help. So let us pray. Oh, Lord, would you open the eyes of our heart this morning? Would you bring seemingly obscure passages that are your inspired word to us to light this morning? Bring them to life. Bring them to gospel life this morning. Use your word. Use this book of the covenant. Use my preaching, would you, O Lord, to lead us to Christ into a fuller and richer understanding of the gospel and the blessings that come therefore. We pray. Amen. I want to answer three questions this morning as we jump into the text. You've just now enrolled in Old Testament hermeneutics. Fancy word meaning interpretation and application. Old Testament hermeneutics, class 101. Got three questions for you this morning that are in your note. Number one, how are we to interpret God's Old Testament law as New Testament believers. I have a quote there for you. If you can put it up there, Jordan. From Graham's Goldsworthy. Goldsworthy. I hope this is helpful for you as we begin the sermon this morning. In doing biblical theology as Christians, we do not start in Genesis 1 and work our way forward until we discover where it is all leading. Rather, we first come to Christ and He directs us to study the Old Testament in the light of the gospel. That's our task this morning. I come to you this morning as a person who has been saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it should be for you this morning if you are a Christian. I come this morning to this text as one who has read the ending. I know the punchline. Christ is victorious. So I am taking this message this morning, going back as I read the Old Testament. I'm not approaching it with my eyes closed, wondering what will happen. I know how it all turns out. And God wants us to know as well, and to use this to properly interpret the very purpose of His giving the law. And that we would see Christ and what He accomplished for us in the cross, and His victory more clearly. That would be our confidence that he would be the object of our faith this morning. That is how we approach the text. Number two, I hope it's obviously equally as obvious that we are not the nation of Israel this morning, right? We are not a Jewish theocracy. We live in a very different cultural, redemptive, historical age. Fancy words. We live in a different time period, okay? That this text was originally written. We are not Israel in the Old Testament sense. Thus, the laws that are given to the Jews at this time, the civil laws do not apply to us. But listen to this quote from Gordon Fee. Fee and Stewart, excellent book. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Great book to get. To know how to interpret the law, the parables, Old Testament and New says this, all the Old Testament law is still the word of God for us, even though it is not still the command of God to us. The Bible contains all sorts of commands that God wants us to know about, which are not directed toward us personally. 
We're going to unpack that a little more. It is God's inspired word to us this morning. But not all these laws, these civil laws, are commands to us personally. You see, it says, as I read in verse 17, chapter 21, whoever curses, dishonors his father or mother, shall be put to death. That is not a command to us this morning. If you wish it was, please talk to me. I have some parenting CDs for you, okay? To help you through your anger issue right now, okay? It is not for us. But it is a command that heightens the importance and seriousness of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And it does have value for us this morning, but in a different way. Number two. Well, if it's not God's command to us, it's just what we should know about God, what should we know? What should we know about God's Old Testament law as Christians? Well, there are a number of reasons we're going to explore today as well as next week. But most importantly and summarily, we need to know about God's Old Testament law because we need to know Christ and Christ crucified. In other words, we need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this book of this covenant that we're going to study. It's God's inspired word to us that leads us to Christ and to a fuller understanding of the gospel. Got it? Question three. Well, how are we to apply the Old Testament law as Christians? Remember the quote? We come to Christ first. Let him direct us back to the Old Testament. That's what we're going to do. I would agree many commentators and theologians, these commandments that do apply to us are those that Christ and the New Testament authors repeat in the New Testament. Those are the commands that are in force and apply to us today. But the question is, what does Christ in the New Testament say about these civil laws of how a Jewish society should be run? Well, you know what? To be honest, it doesn't say much at all. But Christ does have a lot to say about the heart or the moral imperatives, the backbones to all the commands that we are about to receive. He says in a familiar verse, this is Christ speaking, Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. Do we have that on the screen? Great. This is Christ, actually a question being asked to Christ. He is answering the question for this person and for all of us today. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, that is Christ, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the key, verse 40. On these two commands depend all the law all the Pentateuch, all the Old Testament, including the prophets. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what we see in the text this morning. And it's that we can take to the bank as Christians today. Oh, and to do this, we desperately need Christ. Are you ready? Let's open up the text this morning to Exodus chapter 21, verse 1. Exodus 21, verse 1. I'm not going to read the entire three chapters. That would take way too long. I hope that you have or that you will. So we're going to dip into select portions throughout the sermon 
this morning. But I want you to read the very first verse of chapter 21 of the book of Exodus. This is the book of the covenant. And it begins here. God's commands, God's laws to his Jewish people. Verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. These are the rules. That Hebrew word there can be interpreted. These are the precedents. These are the guiding principles. All right? In other words, we are told, these are the rules that are an application of the Ten Commandments which the Lord has just given you. This is what it means to live out the Ten Commandments as a people of God and to reflect me. These are the principles. These are the rules for you. The Book of the Covenant functions somewhat like the U.S. Constitution does for us as Americans, albeit one difference. One difference. God is the legislator. God is the chief executive. And God is the judge giving the rules and giving the laws to his people. These laws aren't exhaustive, but they are illustrative of what it means to be law-abiding members or law-abiding citizens of God's kingdom, of God's community. Thus, the lawgiver has given them a constitution, so to speak. My friends, rules and laws are good, and they are needful. I enjoy going to Outback restaurants. I enjoy blooming onions, ribeye steak, medium rare. But I've always had to laugh at their motto. Anyone know it? No rules, just right. No rules, just right. Well, sounds kind of good. Sounds a little edgy, a little rebellious, a little postmodern. But it makes no sense. Imagine if you're sitting down at a restaurant with your wife, enjoying a fine steak dinner. And you have four absolute strangers come up to you and sit down and cram themselves into the same booth that you're sitting. And they say, hey, mate, no rules, just right. They go on to say, and by the way, we're putting our dinner on your tab. No rules, just right. I don't think it worked too well, do you? If we actually lived by the motto or the adage. You see, my friends, no rules is not freedom. It's anarchy. It's anarchy. No country can survive without laws, and neither can we as the people of God in fellowship with one another. Thank God for his revealed word. His word, like this passage, is God's grace to his people. Do you see it? The book of the covenant is God's generous gift to his people, detailing the rights, the privileges, and the duties of those who are part of his covenant community. That's good. That needs to be understood. But there's something more I want you to see as well about God's grace in this law. Oh, it goes beyond rights. It goes beyond duties. And this law is to take us to delight. To delight. And that's where I believe the Lord wants to take us this morning. To delight in God's law as God's grace to us. God's grace to us. us. In your notes, I have a quote. Um, the paragraph. In Exodus, the law is given to those who have already 
experienced the grace of God in salvation. That they had already been saved, delivered from slavery, and the bondage of Egypt. The law did not save them. The law cannot save them. It never has saved anyone, and it never will save anyone. Oh, my friends, God had a better intent for the law. It's this, to teach us, to teach us about himself and what it means to be a community, a people of God, and, and to lead us to Christ, that we may experience the blessing of obedience as the people of God. It is God's grace to us, his law, and it teaches us. A in your notes, it teaches us what it means to be the people of God. It teaches us what it means to be loyal to him. To be the people of God, to be in covenant with God, requires wholehearted and whole life obedience as a response to his grace. The Lord demands entry into every area of your life through the word of God that he has given to Israel and he has given to us this morning. Just look at your text here. I have the ESV. It has a variety of paragraph sectional headings. We have in this three chapters a variety of different laws speaking to all areas of life. It says in my Bible, laws about slaves. Actually, that would be Hebrew servants, indentured servants that live within their households. I also have later in the chapter 21, laws about restitution, how to pay back grievances or wrongs. Chapter 22, I have the sectional heading, laws about social justice. What does justice look like among God's people? You have in chapter 23, laws about the Sabbath and festivals. Are you getting the picture? God's word speaks to every area of our lives. There is no compartmentalization of our faith as God's people, as Christians. The laws cover all types of relationships. In the passage this morning, laws regarding Hebrew servants. Today that would be employer and employee relationships. Laws covering parental relations. Laws covering how we love our neighbor. Laws about business acquaintances and clients. Laws even about foreigners and aliens and guests. Laws that not only cover different types of relationships, but that cover all different types of situations that we find ourselves in as the people of God and as sinners. It covers laws about homicide. Chapter 21, verse 12 through 17. Laws about bodily injuries. Chapter 21, verses 18 through 32. Laws about theft and property damage. Chapter 21, verse 33, all the way through 22, verse 15. And on and on it goes. So here's the application to this point. Does God's revealed word inform all your relationships, all your business dealings, all your decisions? Does God's word right here Speak to all areas of your life. You see, God's word speaks to you when you're at the dinner table and your child is throwing a fit in the high chair. God's word speaks to you when you pull out of your driveway or your parking spot and accidentally hit your neighbor's car. And he's not there. And he doesn't know. God's word speaks. God's word speaks to you 
And someone in the church has lost their job or is about to lose their house. God's word speaks to you when you have been sinned against. God spe- God's word speaks to you when you are the one who have sinned against your brother and your sister. Does God's word have ready access to your life right now? Most of us wouldn't think about traveling outside our home today without a cell phone. To be in contact with loved ones, with our friends. Then them to call you for you to call them. Most of us today would not think about going a day without checking the messages or text messages on our cell phone. We wouldn't. Can you say the same about the Word of God? Is the Word of God equally accessible in your hand, in your heart, as your cell phone is, and the people close to you? Are you opening up the Word of God daily? Are you learning from it? Text messages from God himself right here to you. Are you reading them daily? What is God speaking to you? Is he speaking at all? God speaks through his word. You see, to be the people of God is to be governed by God's word. How well do you know the word of God? How accessible is it? In your mind, but in your heart. The quoting notes from Goldsworthy. At Sinai, God spells out his people, for his people, what it means to be the people of God. What he does tell, tell them, what he does tell them, reflects in various ways his own character. It is their faithful response to the character of God that will demonstrate that they are his children. You see, when we obey God's revealed word, we demonstrate that we are his people, that we are his children. Not only to those around us, but to the world, to the watching world as well. You see, God gave us his law to reflect his character. God wants to tell you something about who he is, what he is like. He wants you to know that he is holy, that he is just, that he is merciful. And that is what we see in our passage, in the book of the covenant. Number one, that God is holy and that we should be holy as well. It says in verse 22, verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me. You shall be holy before me. You shall be holy like I am. Thus he gives us his word, his law. God is holy. God is also concerned about justice as we read in the text. Let's open up actually chapter 21, verse 22. I'm going to read verse 23. 22, verse 25. God is concerned about justice. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall be surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. Okay, verse 23, here we go. But, but, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. 
God is concerned about justice. And so should we. He's concerned about what we call proportional justice. That the punishment fits the crime. No more, no less. He's concerned about personal injury. He's concerned about justice. I'm not talking personal vengeance. I mean justice. A punishment that fits the crime. Keep us in mind as we go to the cross in a few moments. God is concerned about justice. This law is about God's standard of holiness and his justice. God is concerned about restitution of payback for those who have been wrong. don't have time to go through that passage. You can look at chapter 22, verse 7 through 9. But not only is God concerned about justice, he is also concerned about mercy. God is merciful and compassionate. We also see it right here in the book of the covenant, in his very law. Chapter 22, verse 21. Let me read that through verse 27. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Here's the reason why. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, because you too were aliens before I delivered you and saved you and made you my people. Verse 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Ouch. Verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. I am compassionate. Chapter 23. Laws of the Sabbath. Verse 10. Continuing this theme of God's mercy and compassion, particularly upon the underprivileged and the poor. Verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather it in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Why? That the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. God is a merciful God. God, as we've seen in this passage, is concerned about the underprivileged. He's concerned, as it says here, about the servants and slaves, about pregnant women, about aliens and foreigners in their land. God is concerned about widows. He's concerned about orphans. God is concerned about the poor. And he calls us to show mercy as he has shown mercy to us. Is that in your hearts? especially among those who are needy today. God is speaking to his people. Do you have mercy for those around you who are in need of mercy this morning? Are they on your radar? See, God is saying such mercy starts with your own brothers and sisters in your own community. Oh, it extends beyond that, but it starts right here at the people of God and then extends to our guests. 
You see, the way the Israelites act and the way we act with each other, our horizontal relationship is an indicator of our devotion to God. And it speaks about who God is. Do we want a successful evangelism program here at Palm Vista? Or culture? Yes, we do. But you know what? It starts right here. In how we treat one another. I think it starts with mercy. A ministry of mercy. As we have been shown mercy, such that we show mercy to others. How we treat one another speaks to the greatness of God we serve and sets us apart from the world. It is a witness, and it is winsome to the watching world. How we love, how we treat one another. That the world may know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. God is concerned about justice. Yes, he is. But he just is concerned about mercy as well. So how are we doing? We have widows in our midst here at Palm Vista. We have orphans. Not so much because their father has died, but we have fatherless children here at Palm Vista. We may not have the poor, as is mentioned here, but we do have those right now, I know, who are suffering greatly financially. It's a loss of job or even a home. In that sense, we have people who are poor and hurting. How are we doing in hospitality? Perhaps when you're asked to host someone who you don't know, the stranger, the alien. Where's your heart go? Does it grumble, complain? Is there a generosity? Is there a mercy? Is that being extended in your hearts? Oh, I know we can put on the face and agree, but what's happening in your hearts? Oh, I'm asking that the Lord change me. <laughs> I am not a merciful person. It's not just about gifting, in my case. It's also about character as well. It's about understanding the gospel and the mercy that I have been shown. The prophet Micah said it well in Micah 6.8. It's not in your notes. Let me read it to you now. He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? I'm listening. But to do justice and to love kindness, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what the Lord requires of us. He requires of us people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, he requires it of us today. But here's the catch. I think you know the catch. We cannot do this. We cannot do this without God's help, without the grace of God that leads us to our Savior. He is our hope. Point to in your notes. Not only does God's grace through his law teach us about God himself, what it is to be the people of God, God's grace through his law leads us to Christ. Look at this verse, Galatians 3.23 in your notes. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, our guardian, our teacher, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Paul's not saying that the law is evil and bad. What he's saying is the law is temporal. It's temporary. The law in itself is incomplete. It needs to be fulfilled. 
And this law that we're reading today was and is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Because it is he who came to fulfill the law perfectly. We read that in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law, this is Christ speaking, or the prophets. No, I have come, not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in fulfilling this law that we've read about this morning, God, in His perfect holiness, through His Son, Jesus Christ, obeyed this law. And His obedience is credited to us as righteousness. The fancy word there is that His righteousness has been imputed to us. That means it now belongs to us, as if we obeyed the law perfectly which we never could do. And God knew it in sending and giving us his law. God's righteousness is now ours, as if we had obeyed the law perfectly. 1 Corinthians 1.30 He, being Christ, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who made God our wisdom and our righteousness. Oh, but it doesn't end there. In the way, it's Christ, our righteousness. the righteousness, the obedience to the law and the blessing that came forth from obedience is now ours as well. We receive the blessings that come from Christ's perfect obedience to the law. Amazing. We read in the text, chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. That's the promised land. For us, that's heaven itself, the ultimate promised land. Pay careful attention to him. That's the angel. And obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. Why? For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. He goes on to say in verse 25, And I will bless your bread. I will bless your water. I will provide for you all that you need. I will take away sickness. Verse 25. I will take sickness away from among you. Verse 26. I will fulfill the number of your days. What's going on here? Who's this angel? Why is this here in the text? Well, we know this angel. He has the power or implied power to, if he chose, to pardon sin. Sound familiar? Last week? Who is this angel who bears the name of God? I believe, among many commentators, that this is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Not only is Christ's obedience to the law credited to us, imputed to us, now belongs to us, but the blessings of obedience that come from it will be ours as well. That's what I believe this text is talking about. But we can only fulfill the law through Christ because he is the one who came in perfect obedience to fulfill it on our behalf. Now the blessings are ours as well. Not only in the day to come, in heaven. Here's the kicker. Even here on earth as well. Why? I know there's a law 
lead us to Christ. It is fulfilled in Christ. But through the law, through Christ, he enables us now to please God and enables us as well through his grace to obey the law. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, your notes. But this is the covenant that I will make with you, the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The prophet Jeremiah said, there's a day coming. There's a new covenant coming, a new law coming, so to speak, for my people. In that day, I will write my commands and law on your hearts. What is he talking about there? I believe what he's talking about is this, that I will give my people the desire and the ability to obey my law. I'm going to write it on their hearts. Not just in their heads. They won't just know it. It'll be in their hearts. And they will want to please me. They will want to obey me. In other words, I am giving you the grace to obey in Christ Jesus. You see it? That is good news for us this morning. We are free to love our neighbor. It's the very heart of the book of the covenant. Love God, love your neighbor. We are now free to love God and to love our neighbor, as he is talking about in this book. We don't have to be ruled or driven by personal vengeance in our relationships with the people of God. We can love our neighbor when we have been wronged, when we have been slandered, when we have been taken advantage of. We're not bent out of shape when life seems unfair or we are treated with injustice. We can respond with mercy by God's grace, by Christ who enables us now to obey him. In other words, we don't have to mete out justice in our personal relationships. Why? Because justice has been satisfied at the cross. Justice has been satisfied at the cross. That is amazing news. God is concerned with justice. For he is just and he can be no other. As a just lawgiver and judge, he ordained from the beginning of time that he would kill his perfect, righteous son for the payment of your sins. You see, our sin against God, so he could say, a cosmic sin. It's not just against one another. It's against God, the creator of the universe. And what's the payment for that sin? It's a cosmic penalty as well. The only one person could bear. God himself, who came from heaven down to earth to bear the cosmic penalty, the sins of all the world, rest on Christ, our Savior. Justice was satisfied at the cross. Why? That we would receive mercy. God did all this to satisfy his justice, that we are now free to obey and to show mercy. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cross is where justice and mercy met. Oh, that is why Christ could say, Matthew 5, 38, we put it on the overhead here. Listen to this carefully. Here's the application for us as we narrow down the message and conclusion. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak 
as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus here is reclaiming the very words, the very book of the covenant that we have just read. He's reclaiming it from false application. That passage was never meant to be a passage about taking personal vengeance. God is saying, vengeance belongs to me. I'm the one who is just. I am the one who has met justice and satisfied justice. I'm the one who will be just. Mercy now is yours as surveyors of the wonderful cross. We are free now to love. We are free now to show mercy even when we are wronged. We don't need to be the justice enforcers in a relationship. We do not need to be the justice patrol in our relationships. There is a place for justice in our society. That's why we have a government to enforce and enact justice. Not perfectly, but it's valid. But in our personal lives and relationships, that is not our duty. Justice has been satisfied at the cross of Christ. Mercy should now define us and distinguish us as believers. So how are you doing in this area? I'm just blind mercy. Not just mercy for the poor and the underprivileged, but mercy towards your enemy or to those who have wronged you, even your own brother and sister. How are you doing? I asked Sydney for some examples, just uh, challenges here regarding this area of justice enforcing. Oh, I can relate to it. How about standing in Walmart? I'm scared of Walmart. <laughs> it's just so crowded. It's just, it's just, oh, I can't handle it. I, I go crazy. You're in line. There's 20 people out of register. And there's a rope there. And you see one person creeping up. You know they want to come right in front of you. And you've been waiting for 25 minutes. Rest of your hearts. You're on the Palmetto. It's a traffic jam. There's an accident. You've been there for 45 minutes. There's that guy cruising on the shoulder of the road. What goes to your heart? What goes to your heart? Is it justice? I'm going to prove them wrong. So you honk your horn. You speed up. You give them the luck. In your heart, you want justice. You are demanding justice. That's a small example of everyday life. We can do much larger things as well, much more important. I've been ripped off. Maybe by one who even purports to be a believer financially. Perhaps even led you into a poor financial decision or investment during the housing boom. What's in your heart right now towards that person? Do you want justice? Are you demanding repayment? Is there any mercy? How about those who have verbally abused you? Even those who have physically abused you? Perhaps even your own family or loved ones? What's in your heart? Is it justice? When we demand justice for those who have wronged us, 
we're saying, I'm demanding payment. For Christ has already paid at the cross. For your brother and sister. My friends, that is wrong. Do we demand justice? For the unbeliever, are we demanding justice? Oh, since I found in Christ, they'll find justice at the end. Is that what you want? The God that has shown you mercy? But you want justice. That's what we want. We want ju- mercy for ourselves, injustice for the other person. My friends, that is wrong. The cross tells us otherwise. God satisfied his own justice at the cross. The wrath that we deserved was poured out on his son, that we could go free, that we would receive mercy, that we would show mercy as the people of God. Is it the fragrance of mercy in your life? Mercy towards those who sinned against you. Mercy towards those who are poor and needy. Church, if mercy is lacking in your life, if holiness in your personal relationships is lacking, if the word of God is lacking in your life this morning, I urge you to delight in the law of God's word. The delight in the law of God's word, which leads us to Christ, the living word. That's our application this morning. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward, and we're going to sing a last song in conclusion, it speaks of delighting, delighting in the law of God's word. That may be an odd phrase for some of you this morning, but it is our application. It's where it leads us to this morning. We delight in the law of your word. In the next line, we delight in the son who was perfect from birth. What do those two lines have in common? Everything, as we learned this morning. Let us learn to delight in the God, our lawgiver. Let us learn to delight in the grace that he has shown us. Let us stand, let us sing, by way of application and conclusion.